VT Radio. Let's go. And we are back right here on VT Radio. And we are with the amazing, dedicated, and wonderful individual hailing from Serbia. I am still amazed. He said he is in Serbia. And we are with Drago. Drago, thank you for being on VT Radio today. I am excited to have you. Um, Number one, because we're going to be able to tie some of this together. Um, what's happening over there in and around Russia, Ukraine, how, how, how this is going to impact uh, maybe a little about what is going on with um, Israel and Hamas and Lebanon and Gaza and the Palestinian people. And also, I want to I I get your take that if this global destabilization happens, what might be the next uh, chip to fall? So I thank you, Drago, for being on here. Drago is a senior editor, was a senior editor for uh, Fort Russ News. He has been in journalism for over five years now, and he is a military analyst. So Drago has some amazing insights with what is going on um, over there in the Middle East, over there in the Russia-Ukraine war, and I am excited to uh, talk with him. So um, first off, Drago, welcome to VT Radio. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure, and thank you for having me. Yeah, so I want I want everyone to know um, that they they can find all of your articles on vtforeignpolicy.com and just look up uh, look up Drago and he has a whole awesome amount of dedicated research that he has put into his publications. Um, so make sure you go to vtforeignpolicy.com and look up everything that Drago is publishing on. So to get started. I I need you, I need you, Drago, to paint a picture. We are we are going on year two of Russia and Ukraine, and one of the biggest questions that runs through my mind, and maybe some of the minds of um, people here in America, and I'm sure um, all of our VT uh, radio listeners and VTForeignPolicy.com followers, is why is the Russian Ukraine war still going on and so i want you to i want you to touch a little on the why is it still going on um what is going on over there uh today and and how can and then the next phase of this is how can this destabilization that started two years ago with russia and ukraine um it, it's kind of the tipping point and i want to dive in on maybe what this Russia-Ukraine war is doing to the rest of the globe. So um, fill us in a little bit about this Russia-Ukraine thing. We've been watching it. It's been unfolding, but very rarely do we get to talk to someone over there in that area or not far from that area in a place like Serbia. So give us, give us a little insight on uh, where we at right now with that war. Yeah, I think the first thing we should understand is that this is not a war between Russia and Ukraine, because if it were a war between them, it would have been over like a year and a half ago. So uh, that's the first thing, like we should get off right off the bat. But um, since the West got involved, yeah, uh, since the political West got involved, like we have hundreds of billions of dollars invested, not just like in the Ukrainian military, but also like the Ukrainian state itself, because the Ukrainian state itself cannot function without Western money. So, um, I mean, it would quite literally collapse without it. So um, I think that's the primary reason why it's still going on. Uh, the other thing is the, the nature of warfare has actually changed. And this also has to do with the, the situation in Russia, which, with, the, with the political system in Russia. Because, like, for example, I don't know, in the 80s or, like, even World War II, the Soviet Union was not actually, like, a democracy where leaders had to worry about public opinion. They would just, like, mobilize 10 million guys and send them off to war. Now Russia cannot do that because despite all the stories that Russia is a dictatorship, they're not a democracy and so on, uh, they are, actually. They are, like, they have a democratic system where the government has to worry about public opinion. So they cannot 
take like two or five million soldiers and send them to Ukraine. Like it, it's just not viable for them to do that at this point. Um, so what they have to do, they have to like make incremental um, advances in Ukraine. And also we shouldn't look at this war from a territorial standpoint. Like you, you cannot look at the map and say, oh, like they've conquered this, they're, they're advancing, they're successful or unsuccessful. Like now we're living in an era where everything is a front line because like you are on the front lines where there's artillery and like short range systems and so on. But you also have like very long range missiles which are fired across thousands of kilometers and they can hit like the parts in Western Ukraine or any other part of Ukraine, which is going to uh, like, like this is going to give the Russians some sort of advantage uh, uh, and they will do it. Like they will fire a, a, like 2000 kilometer range missile into any area that they consider that, that's of interest for them. Uh, that's that's the first thing. The other thing is. Uh, the Russians are not in a hurry. Like the Russians don't need to do this, like to a, at a certain point, or like they don't need to do it by certain dates. They just have to keep going, and they've actually spent like a surprisingly low amount of money on this special military operation, as they call it, and uh, they can afford this. On the other hand, I'm not sure the West can afford this, especially now, because as you mentioned, there's there are a lot of hotspots. Uh, springing, up, springing up around the world now, uh, including the Middle East and also China and Taiwan, the, the East, like East, uh, East China Sea and South China Sea situation, which is uh, developing. And uh, like, it, it's impossible for the United States and, and the political West to focus on just one area. Right. And, and that, that kind of leads me to a couple of questions. In America, we are being told it's a war. And you mentioned you mentioned that this is not a war between Russia and Ukraine. Over there, they're calling it a special military operation. So if, if this is not a war, it's a special military operation, give us, give us a quick, just a snippet of what the special military operation from a Russian standpoint and then a Ukrainian standpoint, what, what that is doing because again all we see all we hear um on except for very few like vtforeignpolicy.com is one of the only places that is going to give people the truth right and so if if people yep. don't know of vtforeignpolicy.com they're just listening to american media uh which is telling them one side of the story and whether that story is right or wrong the the things that they say, the words they use, the, the mental games that they make us um, believe is that it's a war. Russia is the problem. They're coming down on Ukraine to 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 take back control of of Ukraine. It, and it's just this fester, right? So give us give us a quick rundown on why over there it's not called a war, it's a special military operation, and what are they achieving with this special military operation? Yeah, first of all, like we should understand what like full-scale war is and what the Russians would be able to do. Like, just look at Gaza, for example, and if you look at what the Israeli military has been doing in Gaza and the destruction they've brought onto Gaza, and compare that to what the Russians have been doing. Right. So I've, I, I'm not sure about the numbers because the numbers are very fluid and depend a lot on, on the sources. But at, I think at this point, there are more dead civilians in Gaza than there, are in, than there have been in the, like the SMO and the Special Military Operation, um, not counting like the dead in the last eight years um, when, when the Donbass War was happening. So uh, like I think the Russians are still fighting this this SMO or war, whatever you want to call it. Like, they're still, like, very, very, um, like, they're making incremental advances, and they're not, like, going, like, on a full-blown invasion. Because if that was the case, they would have been, con they would have conquered a lot more. So what they're doing is what they actually said. And I always say, like, all you have to do is listen to what one side is saying. They say we are demilitarizing Ukraine. So that means like their primary targets are the military. They want to make sure that the Ukrainian army is not viable anymore. It's not possible for it to do anything that's going to 
jeopardize Russia's interest in that area. Um, and just the, the fact that, Makes you know, when, when Western media or let's say the mainstream media, when they're saying that Russia lost like 50% or 60% of its um, military potential, that, that's ridiculous. I mean, if that were the case, we would have seen ICBMs in Ukraine now. I mean, used it. so it's, it's ridiculous to even uh, consider something like that. So what I think is the Russians are using 5 to 10% of their military potential, and I'm talking mostly about ground warfare and like a, a small portion of their air power. The point is Russia cannot use its full military might, first of all, because it needs to uh, make sure that it's, uh, like it can keep NATO in check, and that's one thing. The other thing is if you use all, you, all, all your cards, the enemy will be able to analyze what you have and the way you wage war, and then they will be able to make countermeasures to that. So that's one of the reasons why the Russians are not using the full potential of their air force, the full potential of their air defenses, the full potential of their long-range uh, strike capabilities, and so on. I think that's one of the like one of the main points that we have to understand. Um, and also, even like, like even the ground forces of the I mean, the Russian ground forces are not used to to the full potential because they would just have to use half a million soldiers at least, uh, and they're not doing that. Like what they're doing is they've made this like long wall of artillery. Uh, which is battering down the Ukrainian army. And like, if you look at the, the numbers, the casualty ratio, which is like one to seven from like maybe one to seven or one nine, I'm not sure exactly which number is true. But even if we take the, the smaller one, one to like seven to one in Russia's favor, that's still like a terrible way to wage war, especially if you are the side that's supposed to be defending. I mean, you, you, I'm talking about the, the AFU, of course. So um, it's just unsustainable. In the long term, it's, it's sustainable for Russia, but it's not sustainable for Ukraine. Yeah, and and obviously Russia is is the bigger military, is the bigger beast out of the two, and we know that uh, from all sides. Uh, however, again, here in America, <laughs> Russia is painted as like the devil's child of the world, right? Um, so yeah. what what is and why this this is this is a very hot topic, right? Because uh, everyone is just supposed to believe Russia is horrible. Everyone is just supposed to believe Russia is um, the most evil on the planet. And so I ask these hard questions because people need to hear from a different perspective, not just American media. So why is Russia in American media such the bad guy when we know there has been so much money laundering and horrible things going on with this uh, country called Ukraine that isn't a part of NATO, doesn't have any world... Um, connection except for uh kind of some of the dirty the dirty things that go on like you know all the money that passes through all these different countries i mean ukraine's that hotbed right so why is russia the bad guy well i think it comes down to strategic uh, interests of various states and the elites in those various states so if, if we look at america it's one of the largest state systems in, in human history and in order for it to function, it needs a strong enemy. So, uh, and also, like we we can talk about what uh, your former president Eisenhower said that America should be Americans should be very of the military industrial complex, which wields a tremendous amount of power in all of institutions of the United States. And I think for it to function and to have like a, a reason for existence is the existence of an enemy, which is going to be comparable or near peer. To, to the United States. And if they didn't have one, they would have to invent one. So let's say in the early 2000s, like late 90s, early 2000s, Russia was in, in a bad state. So they couldn't like, and China was still not powerful enough. So what they did, they, they invented the, 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 the danger of terrorism. So the, the military industrial complex could keep going. Now that Russia is powerful enough, they can just come back to uh, the Cold War era mentality where you have like near peer adversaries in this case, like two, not just one, as, as was the case in the Cold War, when it was the Soviet Union it, itself. Now you have two, like 
where you have China and, you know, and, and, and Russia. And this is good for the military industrial complex. Obviously, it's very bad for the American people because they're getting robbed, essentially. I mean, they're getting robbed simply because, like, America is not investing anything in its, or, like, not investing enough into its infrastructure and, like, future development. It's wasting money on weapon systems, which, in all honesty, cannot be used against Russia and China because that's going to be the end of the world. So, essentially, uh, I'm not sure, like, how how the American people could change this. I, I don't want to like sound pessimistic or anything. It's exceedingly difficult to change this system because it's, it's taken such a strong root in, 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 the, in the institutions of, of the United States government. So um, I guess like being aware of it helps, but uh, I'm not sure like if the mainstream media are going to let the American people know like just how far this is going. And like what this has accomplished for the United States it, strategically is terrible because right now there's China, which it still isn't as as militarily powerful as Russia in the United States, but it has like a massive economic power, and it's only a question of time when this economic power will translate to military power. So in the next several decades, we will see China, which is going to expand its arsenal uh, of thermonuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction. So now the U.S. will be in a strategic nightmare where you have like the Russian arsenal, which is already massive and it's been massive for the last 50 or 60 years. And you will have the massive Chinese arsenal. So the vast majority of the global WMD weapons will be aimed at America. So this is like essentially like bringing 350 million Americans into direct danger of being like annihilated because of the interest of, of the very few in the military industrial complex and the American government which simply wants to continue making money and wielding unlimited power, both domestically and abroad. Yeah, and you you said something um, about the whole money aspect. So, I mean, just today or yesterday and then the previous week, like our current administration, without even thinking, will stroke a check for billions. And now we're you know, hundreds of billions already, but we'll stroke a check for billions at the drop of a hat for Ukraine, Israel, um, you name it, right? And, and and they'll do it for Taiwan here pretty soon, like if they feel like China is going to try to encroach on Taiwan. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're going to be at the tune of potentially with this global destabilization that is going to be our next topic, uh, maybe a trillion dollars that American uh, money is just going to be printed and going to be given away when we ask, like you said, infrastructure, road, healthcare, um, retirement, whatever it is, jobs, whatever it is, we have to crack a whip, cry at the feet of our Congress people to get them to do something for the American people. However, at the stroke of a pen, no legislation, no nothing, uh, that, mo that money is sent out um, to these foreign countries. At some point, at some point, is it, Drago, is it, our target on the back is so big that an SCBM or a nuclear sub or um, some bomber on some airplane again what, what whatever it is is it going to take an attack on the american people for them to see and realize that this funding of this globalist elitist weapons of mass destruction keeping the keeping the war games going um is that what it's going to take or is it uh, it's so complicated. I can't even wrap my mind around it to unpack what we're, what we're talking about here. What What is it going to take to get the American people to realize, all right, we need to take care of our own instead of taking care of all these foreign people who essentially hate us. We're just funding it, right? Yeah. Well, I, I really hope it's not going to take an ICBM or SLBM or anything, any of that uh, sort. Because that's going to be uh, 
like that's that's essentially going to be the end of the civilization as we know it because America is, is going to retaliate uh, like that that's out of question of course uh, the the thing is uh, I'm not really sure what it would take for the American people to wake up and essentially like try to prevent this on, on the other hand I'm not even sure if the laws in America would allow the the the, the American people to like change the system that much because this system has existed since America's independence respectively, but it's been like in power 100% since 1913, if I'm not mistaken, when the Fed was um, founded. So it's it, it, like it's, it has taken root at every level of government. So it's, it's very, very difficult to, to get, you know, to just root it out. So uh, I, again, I do hope it's not going to take a World War Three scenario you know, for that to change. Uh, however, uh, it doesn't even require like superpowers for this to happen. Like that's the worst part. Like countries like North Korea, despite like all the ridicule about their economy and the, their society, there are, right. they are uh, a military threat that is not to be underestimated. And they have ICBMs. And as far as I know, now they're developing uh, submarine-launched ballistic missiles and submarines. These are not like probably not nowhere near the level of American or Russian subs. However, they, like it's a big ocean. Like it's very easy to sneak past, you know, right. most of the defenses and anti-submarine systems that most countries have. And it's enough for, for North Korea to, let's say, launch five or six uh, submarine launch missiles or ICBMs. Like, can you even imagine what, what sort of a blow for America's economy would be if Los Angeles, or let's say, just four or five of the largest cities were targeted. So like that would be almost impossible to recover from. So uh, and of course, not to mention the political destabilization that would come with that. Of course. Um, on the other hand, if America were to retaliate, it would have to target a country which is very close to China and Russia. So like the the radiation or whatever like from the destruction of North Korea would spread to Russian and Chinese territory. So they would also be forced to respond. So like it, it's very easy for this to escalate out, out of control because like you, you can't, yeah. there is no like off ramp when, when the nukes start flying. Like there is no way for you to like control like or to say, okay, we just lost Los Angeles. It's okay. Let's just stop. <laughs> or we've only moved countdown. It's going to be okay. You know, like nobody's going to do anything about it. Like you don't know that. Like you don't know like where the wind is going to blow and let's say lead all the radiation from Pyongyang to Beijing, for example, and I don't know, give 10 million people cancer. So like, that's why it's very difficult to control this. And I think in this regard, Trump was, was probably the best choice for America because he realized that it was impossible for the United States to keep its global empire without like causing a World War III scenario. So what he tried to do, he, he realized that there was this uh, multipolar world emerging so what he was trying to do, like to ensure that American strategic backyard is safe and firmly in American hands, and this would have worked. But of course, we know how the election, um, the election um, ended up uh, happening, and uh, like what sort of government the United States now has, and and this government, like it's it's making some of the most self-defeating moves I've ever seen, like starting a sim simultaneous. Of, of like wars or proxy wars against like two near peer adversaries like superpowers like China and Russia and regional like adversaries like North Korea and Iran is just insane and like like if we if we remember the Reagan era like the, what they were trying to do is trying they were trying to split alliances that were like anti-American like alliances between China and Soviet Union and so on these guys are doing the exact opposite like they're pushing countries together into these like giant monoliths and like military and political alliances which the united states along with all of its allies and vassals simply cannot defeat economically militarily you name it so you you brought up a good point that can take us on a different trajectory for a for a few minutes and that is your um, thought that Trump um, was one of the best things for America at that time and could still possibly be uh, good for America. 
So what I just had this conversation today with some people, and it was this uh, civil union husband and wife, um, uh, and one was a guy who really liked Trump because Trump got things done, but then the wife obviously has a different perspective and um, I believe maybe has listened to more of the left-leaning media um, a little bit too much and she has a completely different take on it. So going down that road over in Serbia, you you may speak you may speak for a large percentage of people in Serbia um, who believe, the same way you do, and you may not, but that's beside the point. Another topic, another day is what does Serbia, what does Russia think of Trump versus uh, Biden or right versus left? But you said Trump was best for America. Here in America, uh, if you set foot in here and listen to some, to some of these people, Drago, you would probably be floored. Because there are so many people. So I I like to say if the whole world knew your past, they probably would chew you up and spit you out, right? If the whole world yep. knew my past, they'd probably chew me up and spit me out. There are so many people who get hung up on Trump's past. Maybe he had a girlfriend that they had a rough split up or a wife or a business, whatever it is. Like they get hung up on some of those past things that we as humans, I mean, yeah, we're supposed to kind of, we're, we're supposed to kind of not carry those judgments along in our life, especially if we are of a religious background, like an Orthodox Christian, uh, a conservative Christian, whatever you want to say. So, um, I think you would be fascinated, fascinated to know that there are a lot of people who hate Trump, not because he was good for the country. Not because he actually had four years of no wars or, or some great economies under him or whatever, right? Oh, March of 2020, it tipped off. He let COVID go crazy, so Trump sucks. Um, or, well, they, they found another girl who wants to say he did something to him. Oh, Trump sucks. Like, they get so stuck on the past. And, and again, I'm not asking you this question because I'm for Trump or pro-Trump uh, or against Trump right now. I'm asking you this because when I look and hear at these people who have so much anger on the past of who he is, I am so glad, I'm so glad someone like my wife can forgive me for my past right? Yep. And can love me for who I am today, not for who I was in my past. So that brings me to this question, or that was a long intro to this question. How and why was he so good for this country? And maybe this whole protection of this global destabilization, like we had a fairly good stabilized globe under Trump. I will admit that, right? A, a, a no love and no hate against him. We had a fairly good global stabilization. Why do you say he was the best, but you have 50, 60% of America say he's disgusting, he's a filthy pig because of this, 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 this. They, they completely ignore anything about what this man did for the country or the world in a global stabilization? Well, I, I think the, the first reason is uh, the fact that people are so polarized on completely mindless ideological uh, grounds like identity politics, sexual identity, uh, racial identity, and so on, which obviously, according to the liberals, is very fluid. Unless you're conservative, uh, then you're not fluid. You, you are evil, just evil. That's it. Um, like I wouldn't even call Trump conservative. Like like just 30 years ago, he would have been considered a liberal or a classical liberal. So oh, um, Trump absolutely. is not perfect, obviously. Like like Trump is not perfect. We all know this. Like and I wouldn't even call the guy conservative. Like he had several marriages, which most of whom like fell apart 
and uh, he has like a bunch of kids from different wives and so on. He's not exactly the most conservative guy you can imagine. And he also was in reality shows and so on and so on. Like, however, he is a businessman. Like, wars and politics is not really his thing. And he has made like, like an empire based on that. If you look at the people who are against him, they are politicians. So they are controlled by the military industrial complex that we already talked about. Uh, they're not rich enough to make sovereign decisions. He is. And that was the reason why he always says, like, oh, we have the swamp, we have this deep state, which is trying to, like, uh, you know, force me to do this, force me to do that, uh, trying to, like, uh, let's say, diverge my policies or trying to, like, prevent right. me from doing something. And, and we saw that, like, uh, in Venezuela situation, for example, where he had all these warmongers and war hawks who just wanted to attack Venezuela, like, uh, like uh, for you know, on all costs, basically just they just wanted war anywhere, like against Syria, Venezuela, Iran, whoever. So uh, he was fighting against that. And again, he didn't do this because he's some like angel or like a very altruistic person. It was just in his interest not to start wars, because like your popularity dwindles. Like the same happened to uh, Bush. The same happened to Obama because of all these drone attacks and so on. He knows that. Wars are a death spiral for your political career. Career, so that's why he didn't want to do it. Um, and also, he wanted to make sure that America has the economic power to project its its like global power. So, and he realized that these guys have destroyed America's economic power for the most part because they've wasted its resources on wars, mindless wars, which are good only for the military-industrial complex, not the American people. So, he wanted to revert that. And obviously, a lot of people would have lost a lot of money that that happened. So they wanted to prevent that. And that's the reason why he wasn't elected. I mean, elected, because we obviously have to take into account that the system is rigged at this point. It's ridiculous. I mean, I've been following the election since, like, for the last, I don't know, eight years or so. And uh, I'm not really even sure, like, how legitimate the, the, the election is. But I'm not going to get into that. That's the, that. that's the internal politics of America itself. So. Uh, I, I think your readers and, and your listeners probably know this already, and know how what what sort of like what sort of corruption exists in the system. So they probably know about it better than I do, I guess. So uh, I, I think they will never allow anyone like Trump to come to power because he will simply destroy their power structure. He will destroy the way that the system is organized for these people to funnel money into their own pockets. And this is, I just want to get back to your question about Ukraine and how the, all the money going to Ukraine, uh, like, gets into this. Um, like, the, the point is, the, all the money that they're sending into Ukraine, these politicians that are, like, allowing this to happen, even if they take 5% of the money sent to Ukraine, they're going to be billionaires at the end of all this. So they don't really care. Right. Uh, uh, they don't really care what the consequences for the American people will be because they will not be here in five or six or eight years. Um, and the American people will be left with the check, uh, not not the politicians. Right. Yep. And it's and we we know most, if not all, the decisions of the congressional people in America. All the stuff that they promise us on the campaign trail is all to pad their pocket. And um, and you know that's uh, yeah. Sadly, that's the way the system is set up here. We've got these lobbyists who walk in and and will throw money down or buy them what they want in order to get the vote that they need. And um, it's disgusting. But um, thank you for answering that question on Trump because I, I think uh, for anybody listening, um, again, pro-Trump or against Trump, I think it can shed some light that um, we can hate someone for anything, right? We can, we can dislike them for anything anything um you brought up a really good point though is there's a lot of this polariz polarization against or for him that this this almost like this magnet wants to come together but it just throws it apart um over race well you know maybe not so much but what does he think of race or sex or um religion or is he a christian is he not a christian or 
uh, my goodness, he, he must be liberal. He was just liberal, but he's a conservative. Oh, no, like you were saying, but he's had all these divorces. Like, they, they find um, in, the, in the business world, this is kind of the analogy. You will find a reason to not be successful uh, because you don't believe in yourself. So they will find a reason to not like him. If they don't want to like him, or if a friend doesn't like him, someone will find a reason to not like him. And um, I, I think you you put a nail on the head because if I go back and I look at how America was, um, we tend we we tended to have a very safe economy, a safe global economy. This is going to transition into the next phase of our conversation, Drago, and. Um, the Hezbollah leader um, and, and how how the money of Ukraine and Russia is going to impact the money going to Israel uh, from America. But the Hezbollah leader got involved today and had a very long conversation um, to the camera. And they said it's like the first one he's ever done, maybe on this issue. Um, and our uh, general manager of VT foreign policy did a um, quick summary. So people uh, listening to VT radio right now can go to vtforeignpolicy.com and look up um, the Hezbollah article and what was done. But a lot of people are talking how with Hezbollah stating what they state, some of the threats that they put out against America, against uh, these people who are going to keep escalating and keep funding this war over there, um, what Hezbollah is going to do if, number one, they're attacked, number two, um, Lebanon is attacked, number three, Iran is attacked, all of that stuff. So playing into this global destabilization that we are now seeing, so this is the beautiful thing when you did bring up Trump and how we were fairly global stabilized, now we are in kind of a spiral global destabilization. Um, how does this play if Hezbollah, Iran, Lebanon, um, you know, you've got, you've got Europe that is sitting here doing their uh, big summit trying to say, America, um, this just needs to stop. And America is like pushing forward with Israel, Israel, Israel. Where where does this all play in this whole global destabilization? Because if if and this is the question that we just maybe don't know. I mean, some of the threats uh, might have been stated today, but if Hezbollah, Iran, Lebanon get involved, what can does this open now globally with Ukraine, Russia, Hezbollah, yeah. Iran? Like the whole region, what what happens now? Yeah, it, it's a massive Pandora's box. First of all, Hezbollah is not Hamas. Hamas is, is a relatively guerrilla type organization. Hezbollah is more of a army type organization that actually has uh, a lot of systems, weapon systems that can create a lot of damage, make make a lot of damage to Israel. Um, like, for example, if we consider the rockets and the missiles that Hamas has, those are all, like, unguided, uh, very cheap to produce, and they can be relatively countered, like, relatively easily with uh, systems like the um, Iron Dome and so on. However, Hezbollah is, is a different beast because they have very, very uh, capable missiles, some of them, like, capable short-range guided systems, and also anti-ship missiles, which is probably more important for the United States because... U.S. just deployed a, a large um, a carrier strike group in eastern in the eastern Mediterranean. So, like in this case, if if Hezbollah gets involved, the chances of Iran getting involved like go way up. And Iran, even though it doesn't have nuclear weapons, it has uh, a, an, an enormous ballistic missile arsenal, um, most of which is like. Um, short-range to medium-range missiles, and some intermediate range, which is like over 3,000 kilometers. Um, that means that most of these missiles can reach Israel. And there's no system in Israel that can defend against such missiles. 
there's the arrow three, but still not like it's not good against like no no air defense system is good against mass attacks. And what we're talking about here is most of the Israeli population is 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 concentrated in several like urban areas, especially like the areas on on, on the Mediterranean coast. So if these areas were to get hit by some dirty bomb or some biological or chemical weapon, we could have like hundreds of thousands of dead people. Of course, Israel can retaliate with its own arsenal of nuclear weapons, which is sizable, especially for such a small country. So the way that this can escalate is just terrible. Like maybe the, and the U.S. would get involved. And what I've seen so far, the U.S. has actually sent um, its uh, aerial tankers to the area, which means that the, the U.S. is ready to get involved directly um, uh, when it comes to a possible uh, Israeli attack on Iran or a preemptive attack, or whatever you want to call it. Because, like, the, the Israelis don't need aerial tankers to attack Gaza, right? Or, or Hezbollah, or even Syria. They need this if they're going to go on a long-range mission to strike Iranian targets in Iraq or Iran itself. And this is where the danger comes because, um, I mean, the current government of Israel is, is pushing the Jewish people into a, a possible uh, extinction. Because like they're like they're surrounded by all these like hostile countries, so the, the the best thing you can do is try to at least like keep the conflict um, localized, right? That that that's what a responsible government that cares about its citizens would do, not try to escalate things against a Middle Eastern superpower such as Iran. Like it's not an economic power, obviously, even though, although that's also not uh, not uh, not to be underestimated. But it's uh, it's a very very powerful country militarily. It has a very powerful indigenous military industry, which means they can sustain a long-term war. And also, I'm pretty sure that China and Russia would not leave Iran completely like isolated and let anyone destroy it, like and, and completely destroy the geopolitics, uh, current geopolitics of the Middle East. So this is where we, we're like already going into world or global level escalation, and it's it's very hard to predict what would happen in that in that case. Yeah, and and you you said a you said a point that I want to bring up is uh, pushing the Jewish people into extinction. Now, um, I'll I'll say another. There was just a VT Radio um, podcast that was done on this whole Christian Zionist Christian Zionism of America, where you've got these people who are. Um, believing that essentially what what you just said has to happen. We, we've got to put all of the Israel uh, Jews right back into their land and uh, this revelation is going to happen and, um, and death is going to happen and then the certain ones are going to come to Christ and, and nope, whatever, right? But, but I was just having a conversation with a guy not too long ago, and I said, I don't, like, if, if a Jew or not a Jew doesn't want to accept Christ as the Messiah, and according to Christian um, biblical knowledge, like, if you don't accept Christ as the Messiah, you're not going to go to heaven, right? So, but if a Jew doesn't want to accept Christ as a Messiah in America, in Serbia, in Israel, or in South America, and Christ returns and they don't make it to heaven and they perish. Like, I really don't care where it happens. But these Christian Zionists say they all got to go back to their land of Israel. And then now you're talking that Israel in itself is backing all these people into uh, this possible extinction because from all sides, they've got, they've got this possible attack. So, um, is this just, and, and we don't need to go very deep on this, uh, it's another topic another time, but is this just prophecy unfolding, or is this Christian Zionists being crazy-minded, uh, or is this just the consequence of war? Um, three three questions there. Uh, biblical, yeah. Christian Zion crazy, or just the consequence of war? Well, I, I'm going to try to be brief on that one. Uh well, I, I think any sort of religious fundamentalism is damaging to all parties involved. So, first of all, just as you said, 
I, I don't have to care if a Jewish person doesn't accept Christ, or nobody should care if I don't accept the Jewish uh, vision of how Christianity should be, or Islam, or whichever religion. So uh, I think it would just be normal for people to let, you know, let them believe what they want to believe and try not to force anything on them. I'm pretty sure like there's a lot of Jews who are simply just culturally Jews, like they're not really religious and they don't believe any of that. They just want to like uphold their traditions and that's all. Um, and that's okay. I mean, right. I think the world would probably be a better place if we didn't have all these like fundamentalists and crazies on, in any religion. Uh, because it, it, just by not being tolerant of, of, of the convictions of these uh, people, religious convictions, you already are creating or setting up a future conflict, which is not simply not necessary. So um, I guess like a lot of these groups, like which are thinking strategically, I mean, the, the power elites, uh, they're probably like they're funding this because it suits their geopolitical interests. If they need a conflict to spring up somewhere or like to keep a certain situation, a certain population under, under control or something like that. Um, I think that's the reason why there, like, we have this fundamental, funda fundamentalism that's being pushed on various religions, regardless if it's Christian, if it's Islamic, if it's Jewish. Like, we can see that it's self-defeating and it's damaging because especially like the idea that all Jews should live in one state, that's impossible because Jews live everywhere. Like they live uh, uh, like all around the world. They, they live in Iran, they live in the United States, in Europe, in South America. And they've integrated themselves into these societies. And, and to now, like, to say that they need to all support one state and be part of one state is just ridiculous. It's impossible. It's unviable. So, uh, for, first of all, like, I've actually met Jews in Serbia who just say, I'm Jewish, like, religiously, but I'm Serbian ethnically. Like, they will say this. Like, we have Serbs who are just happen to be Jewish. Or we have Serbs who happen to be Muslim or Orthodox Christians and so on. So I, I think that's a more sustainable way of looking at things than to have religious fundamentalists and crazies like putting religion above everything else. Uh, again, I'm saying this as an Orthodox Christian. I'm not a fundamentalist, obviously. I do prefer my religion, and I do prefer my own cultural heritage, but I do have respect for the heritage of other people and their religions. And I think that would be the best way to sustain a country. And it is sustainable, uh, and we that's why like people should not and countries themselves should not allow anyone to invest in any sort of religious fundamentalism. I agree. Um, man, what a powerful, powerful conversation, Drago. Um, I, I, what I would like to do is I would like to continue our conversation on another episode of VT Radio. So if you were up for it, um, let's schedule another talk and let's, let's continue what I, the imagery that I like is an onion, right? So you have an onion and you just keep peeling back the layers and, and over the course of time for me personally, um, I just keep peeling back the layers and it's, what's crazy is, is the onion metaphorically just keeps getting bigger and bigger because more layers keep coming off. So um, thank you for coming on the show today and thank you for, uh, your wisdom. Thank you for, uh, your journalism. Keep up the great work. Um, and so thankful to have you a part of VT foreign policy. Uh, the great thing about VT foreign policy, um, com and VT radio is a lot of people, uh, a lot of people think that vtforeignpolicy.com should stand and just push one agenda. Maybe it's a pro-Palestinian agenda or a pro-Dr. Uh, Swire, uh, pro-Israel agenda or a pro-Russia or pro-Ukraine. Like they, they want us to hammer into one. And and that's not, that's not peace, right? That's not freedom. That's not opinions. And so we here at VT Radio, vtforeignpolicy.com, believe that everyone has their own opinion, has their own voice, has their own platform uh, to be able to believe and think what they want to think. So uh, we may not get along or get along with everyone's perspective, everyone's thoughts, um, but I thank you um, for bringing your thoughts on the VT Radio today. Um, last, last words. You, it's all you. It's all you, Drago. What's your last words? 
uh, first of all, thank you very much for the kind words. It's, it's been a pleasure talking to you, of course, and uh, uh, like it's been a, a real pleasure and honor to be part of the uh, VT team, so to speak, uh, and to publish my, my content on, on your platform. Um, and what I want to say is just like I hope that the madness will stop, you know, that, the, that it's not going to escalate. I'm not very optimistic in this regard. Like I know like what sort of interests are involved. But I do hope, I have faith that something is going to happen that's going to prevent the escalation to, you know, to simply destroy the, the way of life that we have um, nowadays that we have built over all these decades. And um, just like not to waste it all for, for, you know, for the small percentage of people who don't really care about us. So uh, that will be my final word, I guess. Yes, I love it. I love it. Thank you so much again, Drago. For all you listeners out there on VT Radio, make sure you stick around. Come back for more VT Radio right here at vtforpolicy.com. If you would like to support us, make sure you uh, give us give us a support. Um, you can go to uh, the link on every VT Foreign Policy article. There's a link right there. You can just click that, uh, do a one-time donation, or you can join us, $8 a month. Uh, to be a member of VT Foreign Policy. We do not get the money from all the big media. We are funded by you. And it takes a lot to be able to get this out. Um, hosting fees, internet fees, um, this this VT radio podcast right here, um, it costs money. So everything uh, that you guys can do to support us, we are so appreciative of it. Go to vtforeignpolicy.com. Drago, thank you again. All you listeners out there on VT Radio, we will hear and listen and take any of your comments. So make sure you leave them on the articles. Give us your feedback and we'll see you right back here on another episode of VT Radio. If you enjoyed this presentation, hit the like button now. Also, share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. VT approves this message.